We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Computer, this is Data. I'm an Android. I'm a basketball. I was processing all of the information. Processing. It's one of those idiots who believe in analytics. Rangers pick basketball. Analytics was crap. Does not compute. Just because you got good stats doesn't mean you're a good team. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Lakers Exceptionalism Podcast. My name is Tom Z, joined as always by Tim, aka Crangers McBasketball. Tim, I just want to start by saying happy holidays and thank you to everybody who listens and watches us on playback where we're doing this live. How are you this holiday season, my friend? I'm doing great, Tom. I I wish that there was a like Krampus-like figure called Krangis that <laughs> was very active this time of year. I'm just thinking about like parents telling their little kids, like, you'd be good or Krangis is going to come eat you and like steal your presents. Um, that's all I can cr- think about right now. I'm going to be Krampus McBasketball. I've got some bad news. I'm going to, I've got some bad news about the win yesterday and uh, not the most favorable opinions of some of the trade stuff, but there are also some good things that have happened. There are also some, you know, positive angles to look at with trade options. So, you know, always balanced, but, but it might be more of a Krampus sort of mood. Absolutely. We try to provide that perspective and, you know, what we see on the court, the scheme and the data and bring that all together. We are going to talk about the game, the starting lineup against the Thunder. Uh, Depending on when you're listening to this, we were recording this on Christmas Eve. Um, Lakers have another game against Boston. That's going to be a big measuring stick. I think after this losing streak here, being able to play this tough um, stretch and play it pretty close, that Timberwolves game as well, you know, was, was fairly competitive for the most of it, even though Lakers fell short, but, Let's start, Tim. Let's start immediately and then work back more toward the losing streak that we saw and maybe why some of those things were being manifested. But the Lakers made a starting lineup change last night. And to be perfectly clear, we were both texting and very uh, much saying, bet OKC, bet OKC, hedge your <laughs> fandom with your wallet. Um, didn't work out for our wallets, which is still good. I think we would prefer the team to win and to look good. But when they did, Tim, in fairly dominant fashion, it got away a little bit at the end, but 
they were able to get up to a 20 plus point lead against, you know, a top seed in the West, a young team with, you know, young stars, uh, depth, size. And the Lakers threw out one of the strangest starting lineups in the NBA. Uh, it's Detroit Pistons level of lack of spacing, in my opinion, with LeBron James, Cam Reddish, Jared Vanderbilt, Torian Prince, and Anthony Davis. And I want to start with the good and just ask what you saw on this end. I was on stream last night calling this out, but if you're going to start a lineup like this, which is big, you know, six, five plus guys, like one through five, you better damn well switch. And they did. And the switching helped their defense and forced OKC to make a lot of really tough shots. Now they have a lot of great tough shot makers, but it was able to kind of contain them enough. And with a little bit of shooting luck, I feel like OKC missed a lot of wide open threes there in the third. The Lakers defense was able to get themselves in a position where they didn't have to score 135 points to beat this team. But Good things first. The switching looked pretty good with that big bruising lineup. And if you're going to play that lineup, you you know might as well switch. So what did you see from the defensive scheme last night? Yeah, I like that they leaned into who was out there a little bit more. This has been a pain point for you and for me. And I think for a lot of Lakers fans, you know, we want this team to be good defensively. For the most part, they've been pretty good defensively. But there's more that they can show us. And... I think when we get to the playoffs, they will show us. Like, to an extent, in the regular season, you play more of, like, a vanilla, like, base coverage scheme. But we were thinking that the base coverage for this team might be a little bit more, like, leaning on the mobility you have or leaning on the the rotational ability you have. Maybe we see more switching. Maybe we see more hedging. And we've seen such a, like, drop coverage-heavy situation for this Lakers team overall for AD, which is fine, but then for Wood and for Hayes, which doesn't really make sense. And then considering the point of attack defense like you've got guys that can stay on in front well but in terms of navigating ball screens vando's not the best at this reddish isn't the best at this like putting them in you know situations where they need to defend and drop it's been problematic and thankfully yesterday we saw the team lean a little bit more on what they're good at and put guys in positions to succeed defensively and so i appreciate how that lineup was used defensively even if i think overall when you look at that lineup and the pros and the cons of it in theory, it should be not... I think it leans too heavily on defense. But, you know, th- there are elements of it where it's like, oh, okay, maybe you can get the other team out of their scheme. You can force them to be more of an ISO team. Unfortunately for us, OKC's a pretty good ISO team, and they fared pretty well in ISO against that group. And I, I logged each of the that lineup's defensive plays, and they allowed... Uh, 1.06 expected points per possession against OKC, which is higher than OKC scored on the game overall. Um, if you take away shooting fouls and the one turnover they forced, it's still 1.06. But uh, I think that piece there, like that number needs to be low for us to feel like this lineup will be worth it because offensively, it's really, really disruptive to what you do due to the spacing. And especially now that like not everybody's missing their threes all at the same time. It, it's like, I, I think there was a, a opening for people to say, well, we're not hitting threes anyways. We might as well play a lineup that doesn't have spacing, which is a bad idea in general. Cause there's a difference between the three isn't falling, but the defense is respecting it. And what we saw last night where like AD and LeBron were getting stuffed at the rim and taking hard shots at the rim because Vando's guy was just roaming completely off of him or like, LA was running help beaters well throughout the game, but not with that lineup because 
what are you going to do, Vando? Set a pin in flare screen for Cam Reddish. The defense does not care. Like, there yeah. are those limitations offensively, but defensively, it has to be good. And there is an angle where this lineup can work. But through one game, from a result standpoint, they were, what, plus one, I think? And they were the most used lineup, which you want better out of your starting lineup from that. But from a process standpoint, and I think this is really what we should evaluate, they were getting crushed from an expected points per possession standpoint. 1.06 defensively. Offensively, they're at 0.87. So that's about a you know expected negative 20 net rating, just about, which is not it's it's not a good way to operate. Like if we look at the shot profile, 44% of OKC's OKC shots in that lineup uh, against that lineup were open. For the Lakers, only 24%. Uh, 31% of OKC shots were heavily contested or blocked. That number was almost 50% for the Lakers. So like you are giving up so much ground tactically in terms of trying to let LeBron and AD dominate and operate well with space that it really, really means you have to be dominant defensively. And they did a decent job, but it's, it, it wasn't enough. It needs to be better than this. And I don't, I don't know that we... I mean, this is a good team you're playing in OKC, but I just don't think this is sustainable. I think this was like good shot making, masking what wouldn't work most days. Yeah, agreed. Um, you tweeted out something before the game uh, to that effect, and you were spot on. The excellent shot making. I think LeBron made his first five threes, like almost all of them pull up with a hand in his face contested. Mm-hmm. Great. You know, is that because the starting lineup or, you know, there's so many things that, you know, in basketball connect to other things. And it's such a, you know, interconnected synergistic kind of playing style uh, on both courts, no matter what you do. And I think one, one strength of not having D'Angelo Russell out there is, you know, I don't love Torian Prince on, on Shea, but it's whatever, you know, it's a lot better than D'Lo. And I think especially lately, we've seen teams really target D'Angelo Russell and getting him involved. Uh, I think it was the Bulls game where it was like Javon Carter cooking us on pick and rolls, getting into the paint because they're targeting D'Angelo Russell and pick and rolls. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he had some interesting quotes. I don't want to totally get into that, but we all know he's not a defender on, on like the big stage on a big scale. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot more he could do to, just do kind of meet the bare minimum, but that's just not what he's going to do. And he's told us with his words and his play. So I think it's interesting that the team decided to not kind of split the baby in a sense where they said our offense has kind of been what's bad lately. Our defense hasn't been as good as quite like the in-season tournament. We're not switching or and hedging quite as hard. We're not being quite as aggressive there's a lot more games left. It's only December, but what do you think about them leaning toward the defensive end and not really focusing on what seems to have been the issue all season, which is a lot of times their half court offense? Yeah, I think it's them. I think it's missing the mark a bit to your point. Like the defense this year has been pretty good. It was at its peak form in those in season tournament games when we saw the team like tangibly change their approach and it wasn't just like we're you know we're a drop every day like they were hedging they actually were blitzing in in the indiana game they were switching more frequently like when you look at the rate at which the lakers switched in normal regular season games and compare that with the in-season tournament games they switched more in the in-season tournament games same thing with hedging yeah same thing with blitzing they in those games that like 
truly had a more of an impact on their season and their wallet, they tried harder. They did the stuff like they scouted better and they leaned into the versatility of this roster from a scheme standpoint. I think to me that shows us what the potential of this defense can look like when the stakes are higher. And that's something that translates to if you've got like D'Lo out there at point guard or if you've got Austin out there at point guard with the starting group. Like D'Lo, when we think about what he's good at and bad at defensively, he's not that great of an on-ball guy. He's not great as a screen navigator, but he's pretty solid as a communicator, off-ball rotator. You know, he'll play passing lanes. Like he'll, he's actually boxed out decently more than I thought he would. And you don't get to see those good parts of D'Lo when you're in drop coverage because he's primarily on the ball, either defending 1v1 or trying to navigate around a screen. And so like you're choosing to put him in situations where he's going to be worse. So I, I think if the team were to lean more on the hedging, it would be better for a guy like D'Lo. It would be better for a guy like Reeves, who same sort of deal. Like he's not, he's not Avery Bradley in that he's able to like dodge screens at an elite level. Uh, that is, you know, not really his game. And we can certainly ask more of these guys from an effort standpoint, but they also offensively are doing a lot. So you want to try to find a scheme that allows you to still get good production out of them, even if it can't be their main focus area. And that's where I think just like pushing a little bit more towards switching or towards hedging and doing little things within those. It's not just like we, we've decided to switch one through five and then like live with the consequences. Like, no, you still want to do the off ball switching and scram switching and little things that minimize the mismatches you give up. But like, I think there were scheme answers that could have been explored. And instead of that, we saw the team go with a lineup choice answer. And it's one that to me on paper doesn't like, I'd rather see them solve their problems tactically than say, we don't know how to solve this problem. We're just going to try to play a different game. Cause I, I think how they've rearranged the, the board doesn't, you know, bode well for them long-term in terms of like the success of this new lineup they've chosen, nor do I think it bodes well for them in that, like if you can't solve some of these tactical challenges now, are you going to be able to do it in the playoffs? So it it's a weird, it's weird for, for us to go that way. And I understand people saying, you know, I like our more defensive lineups, but it's about the overall offense and defense. Sometimes you win because you're just really, really good on offense. Sometimes you win because you're really good on defense, but you have to be good at the other area also. And the floor kind of falls out of this group offensively against defenses that are like scouting well and paying attention. Like, I, I think this is going to be worse over time as teams are like, Oh, we, we can just leave Vando alone. Like we're already seeing that when he's playing versus when he's not playing, it really changes the shot quality the Lakers generate, especially at the rim. Like it's so much worse when he's on the court. And it's, it's the type of thing that impacts you in the regular season, because it's not like he's someone that like, Oh, we can go under his ball screens going to his right or something. There's my, Jamal Murray quirk reference. It's like, oh no, this guy can't shoot threes. Like it's not nuanced. It's not super specific. It's just like we can play, you know, this guy's a free safety or if he's in the dunker spot, we can play goalie with, with his man. So it's, it's so easy for the other team to take advantage of what that group is bad at. And for you to try to counter, you have to be like so incredibly on your game tactically at a level in the regular season. I just don't think is, is something that they're going to be able to do. more toward the the bad and and maybe not even so much realized last night even though i think it it was to some degree is you know jared vanderbilt is just nothing on offense right now he's not setting pin and flares for cam reddish even if that's not a great play um 
Cam Reddish, you know, one of the bottom 25 players in offensive LeBron uh, per basketball index with a minimum 250 minutes. But Vando is averaging one point per game. And I think it's so clear on how much better Rui has been lately at cutting, doing those help beaters, uh, sneaking in under the basket, getting some dunks. Then Vando has been, and ultimately, if he is one of the worst offensive players in the league, which frankly, right now he has been, his effort and impact isn't being felt in the small things like offensive rebounding as much. We saw it briefly, you know, the first few games, but I haven't mm-hmm. felt that quite as much. He's not setting screens, they're not using him in the short roll. He's standing in the corner. He still hasn't made a three this season. So wow. What you know what I mean? What to already add him into a lineup with Cam Reddish struggling, you know, to 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 impact offenses offensively as well. Like he has his moments attacking a good closeout, but you know, more often than not, it's it's kind of a negative. And to mm-hmm. to sync those guys in with LeBron and AD, you know, AD credit his passing was awesome the other night. I think he had six or seven assists. Um, like four of them were to Rui, and and you see that. Like there's a couple plays where you know AD gets doubled, Cam would cut from the corner, LeBron would cut from the top, and they do that kind of a double dive dump off. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, it's it's a simple play to kind of adjust to to cut off. And I'm worried that the counters that you can build around a team with such lack of offensive weapons is not sustainable and shout out to Torian Prince still making his threes. If he falls off even a little bit, that lineup is completely useless to me too. Like that's mm-hmm. their best offensive player in that lineup. Yep. Yeah. I'm with you. You can't run LeBron 82 man game. If like Torian's threes aren't falling in a given game because you don't have to respect the other two guys much at all. Like Cam Reddish, super high three point shot quality. He's not being respected. Jared Vanderbilt, of course, defenses aren't caring. Like, your margin for error is very slim. I think if the Lakers were to open with this lineup for like three, four minutes and then really quickly pivot out of it, and then we don't see it again to start the second half, kind of like a JaVale McGee situation, I would be less worried about this. But they still use this for as their most frequently used lineup last game. And it barely was winning its minutes. And it wasn't playing in a way that dictated that it should have won its minutes. And I see not much wiggle room tactically for you offensively to fix your issues. And so I feel like you've already in a way like you, the seal, you're so much closer to your ceiling offensively with this group. It's not like, oh, man, if they only get 20 more games of this, they're going to be able to like build in all these cool things and work out the kinks. You're, you're, no, <laughs> no, like there you can't play two guys who the defenses don't care about as shooters and then like just be resigned to the fact that the lineup that AD and LeBron play in most together is going to be one where they're just kind of living in hell from a spacing standpoint it it's it's untenable like 50% of the shots uh with that starting lineup were heavily contested or blocked in general with Vando on court 65% of the shots at the rim for the Lakers were blocked or heavily contested i should say there's at the rim not in general like, you can't win that way. You absolutely cannot win that way, especially for a team that isn't a super high three-point shooting team from a percentage or a frequency standpoint. It's been 
Doesn't matter, but we because we can get to the rim, we could draw fouls, and we can get good shots at the rim. If you can no longer get to the rim, you're not going to get those high-quality shots. You are not going to get as many offensive rebounds. You are not going to be drawing fouls as well. And all of a sudden, you have completely turned the offense into like, well, if we just shoot a little bit more normal from three, we're fine to like, I don't know what we're good at. <laughs> it, it's yeah. really, really hard to see the upside for this group. So I'm not in favor of proceeding with it. I would expect because we won last game, we're probably going to see it again. I think it's really hurtful that Gabe Vincent now yeah. with his knee issue may be out for quite an extended period of time because I thought he was an internal candidate to fill into that starting lineup and provide a level facilitation, a level of on-ball defense, uh, an ability to switch a little bit, even though he's a smaller guy, the ability to like be a defensive playmaker on caliber with Jared Vanderbilt, at least according to what he did last season, and like provide spacing. Like he just had the right mix of all of those skills that when he's right, when he's himself, that's the kind of guy that makes sense. And now that option's out of there, you don't really have that in-between sort of player anymore. It's either the offensive guys or the defensive guys. And from a Tim perspective, and not everyone will agree with this, I see more wiggle room with leaning offense and then being smart tactically than I do with these like leaning really heavily into the defense and then just kind of hoping that you just have really great shot making games. Like I'd rather see him start freaking Christian Wood and just play bigger and say, all right, well, we're not as good on ball, but we've got much more collective rim protection as a result. Like I would prefer that over this. I would prefer a lot of options over this right now. I don't, I'm. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This yeah. scares me, the fact that they've gone with this. And to be clear, this isn't the first like kind of sign to me that Ham has been maybe, you know, getting two 4D chess with some of his lineup choices because over the course of this losing streak that the Lakers just broke, we saw Rui slash Vando at the five. I'm not sure what semantical. They were both kind of switching on to bigs. Awful. Got roasted. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yep. We saw we see, we continue to see Wood and Jackson Hazen at the same time. Um, like there's so many other lineup choices that are making me scratch my head in the Wolves game where um, Austin's cooking. He's like, you know, eight for twelve or something at some point. Velo is one of his coldest, you know, stretches as a Laker has just hasn't been as aggressive in the shots he is taking. He's he's throwing up air balls, you know. He's not he's not playing with the confidence that we know D'Lo to play with. And I think like those are the material things that have changed since the good quality basketball we've seen. Like a lot of effort and energy fall off. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they're you know running sets is quite as frequently. We were texting about this too. That when they don't run their sets and have an organized offense, they look so bad and so desperate and and reliant on LeBron and AD. But there have been several really bad lineup decisions made before this starting lineup choice that's kind of uh, has, you know, brought this all to a head, I think, where for the most part, you know, you and I, I think on the spectrum of Lakers, the left con or, you know, optimism, we're more optimistic about this team and what they could do once they got healthy. And Tim, once it got healthy, the self-inflicted wounds started to come. So I don't know. How do you unpack the losing streak and maybe put that into context for for audiences? Yeah, it was a lot going on. Like we saw them try stuff out from a rotation standpoint, from a lineup standpoint. And to an extent, I understand like experimenting now that you have Vincent and Vando back for the first time, like all year. I get trying stuff out specifically with them, but we, we still saw them like try stuff that like, on paper, it shouldn't work, and it didn't work. And I don't know what they thought. Like, you can't just throw anything at the wall. Like, there has to be the does this make sense discussion. And then if it makes some sense, what are the situations in which it makes sense? And then when we're in those situations, let's try it. They were throwing stuff out there that didn't make sense, and certainly not for the situations they were trying it within. And you're just kind of, like, punting minutes there and, and like, allowing your team to perform worse. And that's concerning to me. Seeing and if you can't get a timeout after two minutes of it clearly being a disaster, that's kind of my issue kind of with his timeout kind of ta- tactics. If you're going to get weird, have a quick trigger and be able to change. But it hasn't happened. Yeah. And and so like the timeouts piece, I, I think it's something that gets a disproportionate amount of attention. I think it's still something they could do better with. But as a as an average fan who's not spending time digging into like X's and O stuff, which is totally understandable. When I'm watching other sports, I don't have any, like I'm, I'm watching more at the level that I would expect a lot of fans are watching the Lakers games at where like, I don't know what the hell's going on when it comes to like hockey or soccer tactics, things like that. Um, Like in the absence of being able to criticize those things, all that you have left are rotations and timeouts basically. And if the rotations bit isn't something you can talk about because we're so injured, the only thing left is timeouts. Like <laughs> if I would be curious, I don't know that, that there's a way to do this, but I would be curious to look at like how many timeouts, like if what is the cutoff at which you say like, all right, if the other team is on a, you know, X to zero run, eight, nothing run, six, nothing run, five, nothing run. At what point do you automatically say we need to call a timeout? And does it I, matter how high quality the shots are? Like, if we're getting good shots, they're not going in. The other team's just hitting their shots. Do you call a timeout? Or is it only when your team, like, actually starts playing worse that you need to call that timeout? And I'd be curious if, like, 
for the people who are like, if it's six nothing, you have to call them out. How many six nothing runs are there in a basketball game? That's two How, threes. Like, early I mean, into the the second quarter, you're running out of all of your timeouts. Yeah. Like that's two possessions. So, if in this yeah, that's two yeah. quarter threes. So there's there's an in between ground. There are examples like the one you're talking about where like clearly this doesn't make sense. It shouldn't right. have been thrown out there in the first place. But right. with it thrown out there, you, we quickly realize it doesn't work. It's time to pivot. It's time, like if there were a time to call a timeout, it's right now. We got to change up what we're doing because that's the value of a timeout. Part of it is just you know cool down, but a lot of it is right now we're not playing winning basketball, and here are the changes we're going to make so that we are regaining that te- that edge, whether it be a lineup change, a scheme change on offense, a scheme change on defense, tactical change, whatever it happens to be. So I, I think there's a middle ground there, but like just looking at the scheme, like. Christian Wood, Jackson Hayes at career high levels of drop coverage usage. That's bullshit, dude. Like those yeah. guys are not good at that. We knew going yeah. into the year they weren't good at that. You knew going into the year they weren't good at that as, yeah. as Rob Polinka and Jarvin Ham. And if you went and grabbed those guys anticipating you were going to run them at career high drop coverage usage, you're, you're a fool. You shouldn't be in your job. Like yeah. this is readily and easily easy information to find. You have this information. And so it, it, like, it's hard to it's in a way it's made it more challenging to assess the situation because it's like, yeah, Jackson Hayes, Christian Wood, they don't look good defensively, but also they're being asked to do things they're bad at. Like if Torian Prince was out there running ball screens all day and he looks like crap, I'd be like, yeah, no crap. You know, of course he looks like crap. He's not good at this. Like use him as something else. And uh, like that, that was part of the losing streak offensively. And I, I'm doing all the tracking of uh, logged over. Let's see here. 32, 3,300 rows of information so far this season the lakers over the past six games have had a substantially lower percentage of their offense be organized offense than the year as a whole so like they're freelancing more they are putting out worse lineups some of the minutes for individual guys has been weird like really high numbers really low numbers inconsistent numbers we saw like the usage of help beaters dip a few games ago during that losing streak yesterday was at a career i'm sorry not career high season high uh, volume of 10 a game and generally over the course of the year it's just risen and risen and risen but there was a little gap there where it went way down and these are the sorts of things where like you've got guys doing things they're bad at like the coverages or like jackson hayes all of a sudden he's at a by far career low usage from a role man standpoint like why is that is there something about the lineups that needs to change he hasn't just suddenly gotten much worse as a screener like what is driving things that lead to guys doing what they're bad at more often and doing what they're good at less often. And how do we fix that? Those, those sorts of internal discussion discussions and the, the systems in place to track, like here's how frequently we're calling, you know, set plays. Here's how frequently we're getting to our help beaters. Here's how we're using guys compared to what they're good at there. There's just a lack of awareness and control through the use of internal systems. From my perspective, same thing with the boxing out where like, I know they don't track this because I've asked. Like there are things they don't track that lead to little lulls within the year where they they turn their focus to you know working on something else and then suddenly we're not calling plays and the offense stinks or we're we're you know using guys in ways that like obviously don't make sense and they should know don't make sense but they haven't like it's not the, the, we need to see more I need more dashboards Tom I need more coaches meetings where they're like <laughs> sitting there reviewing a KPI dashboard like this is a C suite in in corporate America where they're able to see oh we're not, you know, using players correctly or, oh, our scheme isn't being called correctly just so that they're aware of it. Cause I, I trust that when they're aware of these things, they'll fix them. But I just, 
that's that to me is frustrating because this should never happen. I've I've been played, coached, consulted with teams where stuff like this has happened, and it's due to reasons like this, and it's super fixable. And you are such a big money organization that you should be able to like set some of these simple things up. And I, you know, it frustrates me because I want to win. I care about the Lakers. I'm not here to you know advocate for certain guys to play more because I care about them or you know I just want to win. And little things like this seems like such low hanging fruit to just run your organization well in a way that sets your coaches and players up to succeed. And, and part of that's on the org, part of that's on the coaches. Part of this is on the players. And collectively, it led to, what, like a three-game losing streak? And it was like the end of the world. But even yesterday's game, like they won, but I wouldn't be surprised if like, I don't know what the second spectrum numbers look like, but if it said like, hey, they probably should have lost that game. Like they haven't solved all their problems. And so you play another tough team coming up in Boston that is really going to challenge you. I don't feel comfortable going into that game to say like, Oh, we've got all of our stuff figured out. Like no problem. We got this. Like, I think they're going to get, they're going to lose. Um, unless they make yeah. some changes and I have no reason to believe they're going to make those changes because they haven't so far. Yeah, uh, they were, they did lose five of six, um, including a game against the Spurs against the mm-hmm. bowl. There's some, some tough teams in there. Uh, they played the Mavericks close, you know, got torched by Dante Exum. We called, or, you know, you were at that game. I called it. It it was brutal. I, I think you make a strong point about timeouts, but to me, there's a lack of a awareness of why the points are coming. And this, when you get beat on a, on a, a set and there's no adjustment within the play and they continue because teams will run those plays multiple times, right? You've got to prove that you have adjusted to it. There's a lack of, of, in-game adjustment within like play to play to play basis mm-hmm. that me either warrants the coaches to get involved and say hey we need to step in and make these adjustments or whoever's captaining out the defense the communication is not quite there right and yep. it's really hard to pinpoint the exact principles that the kind of coaches are talking to them about so for example right like d'angelo russell is i don't have the numbers in front of me not taking mid-rangers to the point that he was to start the season. And his aggression in general has dropped in the pick and roll. And what you're seeing is the big start to sink down and take away AD because they know that's what he's going for. With the guard on the back, you know, Delos put him in jail. He has like an eight-foot gap between him and the rim. But if he tries to attack the rim, he doesn't have the finishing ability. He's going to get blocked. So there's a point where you have to kind of pull up from the mid range there in some of those situations or, or kick it back out and kind of reset in action. Um, but another thing is like, why are we still allowing cam reddish to run into three guys on in transition? Mm-hmm. And has nobody sat him down and talked to him and be like, this is your success when you do this. And this is your turnovers and offensive foul rate. You know what I mean? Like, Knowing, know your personnel. That starts with yourself too. So, there's a lot of things that to me aren't adding up with what these players are good at and what they're being asked to do. Yeah, I, and that that comes down to like, and I'm gonna share my screen here. I'm just working with the one right now. Um, this is what Delo's pick and roll ball handler scoring. Uh, aggregate like points added has looked like over the season started slow was crazy hot for uh, most of the season 
And then recently, the past handful of games has kind of plateaued or dipped depending on where you look at the start and end points. And so we've seen as the shot making has dropped that that confidence in the changing of his shot profile and his like internal like tendencies as to like, when do I shoot? When do I pass? How deep do I get into the paint? Things like that aren't where we want them to be. So like little things like that, when that happens that, you know, that does impact how you perform. So you know, going to him, telling him, hey, keep shooting the good shots. This is here. We need to be taking it. And that's the kind of stuff you go over in, in film room sessions. What was the defense doing? What was there? How did we, what was our decision making? Like, I need them pointing out like, oh, you know, deal, you should have made that shot or take taking that shot or like, man, that skip pass was there. Like, those are the little things that by reflecting and learning, you then are able to apply that learning and, and perform better in the future. And let's take a minute to talk about like the in-game piece because Mm -hmm. this can be done so many different ways and there's a range of like good to bad here when 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 it comes to managing because because there's so much to do in a game like you have to figure out like we you've got your rotation map that you kind of want to go with heading into the game or at least you should if you don't that's a problem but you should know here's what we want to do today it's always going to be a little bit different because you you have to wait for a dead ball to actually sub guys in and out so of course, it's going to fluctuate a tiny bit, but you go into the game knowing what you want to do. And then as fouls happen or as the tactics change and you're like, oh, crap, we need to switch more. We we need to be, I don't know, have the guy into pick and pop or the guy into be a lob threat, like things like that change. Fouls happen. Maybe an individual guy is getting roasted. Maybe he feels sick. Like you have to adjust in the game. As a coaching staff, you have to be, you know, someone needs to be responsible for managing that piece from a timeout standpoint. As a staff, you need to get everyone on the same page for a here's when we call timeouts. This is this is the point at which this is why we call timeouts. It's not just automatic four nothing, six nothing, eight nothing, but like if we see this, here's what it is. Or if there is an eight nothing run, here's what we do. And so having that sorted out, and then maybe you delegate that to an assistant. And then once you once they think you're in that situation, and of course the head coach can always do them themselves, but that person on the bench might be like, hey Darvin, timeout here? Like they're on a 6-0 run. We've, you know, gotten burned by the same play three plays in a row, something like that. And just like feeding info to the decision maker, but allowing that delegation to take place. So Darvin Ham doesn't need to be in his own mind managing rotations, managing timeouts. On top of that, managing what plays are we calling offensively? When I went to the Dallas game, Darvin Ham was the one calling out the plays. And I couldn't tell. I certainly didn't see hand signals from the bench to him. There was some dialogue. I couldn't tell if there was someone in charge of we should run double drag right now and telling him that it seemed more like he was just the one calling that out. That's something that in Tim's world, if Tim's able to run the show, we've got someone up in a box that is tracking what we're running and they're logging it the way I log after the games. Uh, I would I could do the logging in game if I needed to, but we're we're sitting on stage, so I obviously can't. But if you've got someone there in the arena watching the game that knows your full playbook, knows what everything's called, and is just able to mark down what you ran, what the defense ran against it, and then what happened, that gives you information that allows you as quickly as possible to say, oh, they've changed from a deeper drop to a higher drop. Therefore, these plays don't work anymore. We need to change it up. Right. If at, at at floor level, it's harder to notice some of that sort of stuff. And the players, they're, they're out there trying to play. They're not usually out there trying to be like, oh, we should be running this play. Sometimes, you know, point guards can be enabled to do that. They can be empowered to do that. But at times, this is, this is more of a coaching job thing. So having someone, in, and it could just be someone on the bench tracking this, but you need to track what you're running, what the situation is. And then so when the situation changes, 
you can then advise on how to change things up. Um, and doing it live rather than just waiting in between every timeout allows you to be smarter and be more pinpoint because a, a point here, a point there wins you games. Same thing with defense. Ideally, if you're heading into the game, you know the other the sets the other team runs because you scouted them. And as they run them, you can track. Here's what we did against it. Oh, man, they ran the same thing four plays in a row. Do we need to change up what we're doing? Or do we feel comfortable with what we're doing? Because clearly they feel comfortable attacking what we're showing them. Do we need to make a change? Like, there's a lot that needs to be paid attention to. And then on top of that, you know, as a coach, you're talking to players, you're answering their questions, you're coaching them up on little things, little technique things. You are talking to the refs and advocating for fouls and things like that. There's so much that needs to happen. And if the distribution of labor isn't strong and the internal systems aren't strong, it's so easy to drop a ball because you are juggling so much and, or you're delaying the feedback loop. So it's only every like five or six minutes of game time when a timeout is called. And then we're like, oh crap, we've been calling the wrong place this whole time because they switched up what coverage is there. And like little things like that need to be tightened up. And that's the kind of stuff that I'm noticing with this team where I feel like there's opportunity for that to be better. And I know this is like super niche th- stuff, but I think our audience would appreciate this. And like, this is something I have so much here. more appreciation right. for having like okay. gotten more involved on the team side. Like it makes such a big difference. It, this is the type of little stuff that like good coaching staffs that are like true pros and know exactly what they're doing. And they've been coaching forever. Like they have fine tuned these things and the use of technology can really enable a lot of this. Like, I don't know, man, you should be able to feed in, here are all the plays that like the, the Lakers should have their own version of what I do in terms of tracking what plays they run and when and what the mm-hmm. results are. And they should know these plays work against these coverages and they should be able to have like an iPad on the bench where they say like the defense is switching now and it should say, here are the plays you should be running. <laughs> like, or here's the lineup we have in the game. Here are the plays you should be running. Like that is super doable. And I would hope the team is doing. And if they're not doing like we're leaving points out on the table. And if it's not happening with an iPad, it should be like, at least we have the info so that the people the coaches can analyze and make those decisions. So I don't know, maybe I'm becoming too idealistic about like, here's what I want to see and anything below that is substandard. But like, we're seeing a lot of the symptoms that point in the same direction where it's like LA has poor internal internal processes and it looks like a rookie coaching staff running the show. And I think fans intuitively pick up on this. They maybe don't know how to um, kind of communicate it exactly. So they, they blame this or that, you know, they blame players, they blame lineups um, mm-hmm. But let me give you kind of a hypothetical that's not such a hypothetical because it happened last night, right? We we're watching the game in the second half, and OKC goes to a zone, right? I I I haven't rewatched it. I haven't seen the numbers. I saw some of your tweets about it. I actually don't feel like the Lakers particularly beat that zone particularly well. They were passing around the perimeter a lot, and they were just making some of those threes where you have a little bit extra space on, mm-hmm. you know, the shift from the left wing to the center wing. And Austin Reeves hits a three, right? It's the process versus result. The result worked. The process was not great. And when you get rewarded with those results, your process doesn't have an incentive to change unless you're a process-based coaching staff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Because, and that applies at so many different levels. Like, you are going to play a lot of games where the final margin of victory is within like five points. And if 
you had to have a, happened to have a great shot making game, you won, but maybe you should have lost. Or the other team shot poorly and you won, but maybe you really should have lost. Or vice versa, where you lessons, lost and you should right. have won. You no matter what, you need to be able to analyze the process so that you are able to make the right adjustments. Like this is this is part of why, like, if you're gonna gamble on NBA, I think the easiest place to try to gamble is in the playoffs in a playoff series because people overreact to the result. Like, oh yeah, it, process wise, the Lakers won this game by two points, but real results they lost by five. And <laughs> and so that's what, as a coaching staff, you need to be looking at and understanding. Okay. Either we, I forget what, I, what the numbers were that I just said, but hey, we, we actually got outplayed. We need to change things. You can't only change things when you lose or, you know, like not be learning from things when you win or, or like trying to change things, even though you were outplaying the other team and really you were doing the right things. You, you can't just change to change. You, like you want to understand the situation and then put yourself in the right look and the shot making is the shot making. And at a micro level, like what you're talking about with the zone, like OKC ran zone for nine plays. Three plays in the first half, six plays in the second half. And it was on one play, it was like out of an out of timeout situation. And there was five seconds on the shot clock. And the Lakers didn't have a play call to attack it because OKC hadn't been in zone. Right. Um, the other eight plays, OKC lined up in zone after a made look, made basket or dead ball. And the Lakers had a full shot clock to attack it. And because it was a 3 2 or 1 2 2, it wasn't the same. Like you don't run the same plays to attack a three-two that it's you do attacking a two. Yeah. So the Lakers, all but one of those plays, they were kind of freelancing. They didn't have their normal called sets because just right. about I, I think every other team we've played this year has run a two-three or primarily mm-hmm. run a two-three when we faced it. So like understandable. You weren't prepared. After you saw it in the first half, you got to draw stuff up at halftime and say, hey, we're seeing a two-three. If you see a one-three-one, same thing. If you're seeing a full court zone press, same thing. We haven't seen this yet. Uh, here's how we're going to approach it in the second half. And this is what we're looking for. Be ready to run it. And, you know, we're going to cover that for a couple of minutes because you then did see the other team run that zone in the second half. The Lakers were prepared. They didn't really adjust to it. And they hit, I think they went three for four on the three-pointers, which certainly helped. They also got some good looks at the rim. They There were things that they did that worked well. Their shot quality against the zone was actually higher than the shot quality against man. But it wasn't all that good. Like it was still below what I would want it to be. And you still did rely on, on some shot making against man and the zone to, to end up succeeding. But yeah, that that's a situation where like, as soon as you see it, you got to figure out as a coaching staff, how do we want to attack this? And then at the earliest possible moment, get that conveyed to the team and then have them run it. Um, and those are the sorts of like little battles that make up each individual game. And, you know, you can't look at LA not knowing what they're doing against the zone yesterday, which by the way was not run against the starting lineup, but I think would have been much more effective against the starting lineup. Um, so you're certainly vulnerable there. Like yeah. as a defensive minded, well, I'd say I'm more of an offensive minded guy, but if putting on my defensive coach hat, man, man, this offensive this the starting lineup for the Lakers is so vulnerable. But anyway, it, it, you got away with one. You need to be better prepared next game. If the Lakers face this type of zone again and Thankfully, like zone's not, I don't know. It, most teams aren't going to just be like, oh, well, the Lakers are bad against a 3-2, so let's install 3-2 when we've never run it before. That probably won't happen, but you'd still like to see the team be better prepared to face this next time they face it. But at the same time, right, it, it's not the first time you've seen a 3-2 zone in your basketball career. These guys are professionals. They've yeah. seen it all up and down through. They've 
probably had points at some point where they have had to practice against it and at least generally mm-hmm. understand what you need to do against the zone and passing around the top is not it <laughs> against any yeah. zone basically. So yeah. Oh, um, yeah. let's. I would love to talk about the Lakers zone defense. Yeah, let's do it. We've talked about it a little bit on the streams. The this audience, I don't think, has heard our zone defensive thoughts, at least not recently. Thus far on the season, LA has been a top five team in the NBA in terms of the frequency at which they're running zone defense. I did a film room deep dive where I dug into this. If you're in the Discord at the courtside tier or higher, you have access to that. It was 56 minutes, 52 minutes or so. Looking at the film, looking at the data, drawing stuff up on the whiteboard of here's what LA does. Here's what how they're trying to approach it. Here's what they could be doing. Here's how it's worked. When it's not working, here's what happens. Um, here's how it is attacked. Like I, I drew up a lot of different things and we watched a lot of, a lot of film. But my takeaway was for most of the year, the Lakers zone stunk. <laughs> like it wasn't being run in a way that looked polished. It didn't look like they knew what they were doing. There were simple little granular things in terms of help defense and rotating within the zone that are, I don't want to say universal, but if they don't exist, I really question the structural integrity of the zone. And up until the next game, those things weren't there. And then the next game, and actually I think it might've been the game before the next game and they ran it we started finally seeing some of those little granular rotations be made. And all of a sudden it works so much better because you're not like easily broken down. Like in man-to-man defense, if your health defense stinks, you're going to have a lot of problems. If your health defense is good, it makes a big difference. And we saw that just apply to a zone environment. And my stance on the zone has changed from this is bad. We should never run it. Or like, it should be very, very rare to like, I'm okay with this being used as a change up. It should not be your primary defense zone at the NBA level cannot be your primary defense and and reasonably expect to succeed unless there's some sort of extenuating circumstance that whatever we could talk about but probably doesn't happen like I think it's something you can throw out after timeouts like a play here or there catch a team that is bad against zone like the Knicks and run it against them and they stunk against it and they didn't get good shots against it it's an option now when before it to me shouldn't really have been something to consider and Part of that is just they've worked on it enough that now they've they figured it out. But it wasn't like they were trying to execute those rotations the first 10, 15 games they ran zone and they just weren't executing, but they tried like they didn't know what they were doing. And so little things like that were like, our zone isn't working. Why isn't it Why isn't it working? Like you need to be able to have the basketball background and IQ or bring in people who do or like go reach out to your coaching friends and be like, hey, what's what do you see here? And find the solution and then implement it as soon as possible. You shouldn't, it shouldn't take 18 games or 20 games of running two, three zone to realize that you need to tell the players, here's how we want to, you know, run help defense within it. And and little stuff like that, like I'm now okay with the zone, still don't want it to be used a bunch, but how long it took LA to get to installing some of the basics of a two, three zone is really frustrating for me to watch. Yeah. Especially, okay, so here's a trying to bring this all together D'Lo coming off the bench creates a similar issue to me that the original starting lineup with Austin and D'Lo had, which is that lack of size on the perimeter. If you have D'Angelo Russell and Austin Reeves and you can see the team prefer to try to stop the, the per uh, penetration uh, on the perimeter before it gets in or, and a zone is going to keep Anthony Davis near the rim. It's also kind of a cheat, in keeping your players connected. If you do it right, to your point, 
you know, one guy moves, the whole zone rotates. It's not just that side of the floor. You have to pinch down. And so I think it could come back even more in maybe these bench units with D'Lo and and Austin. And it's probably going to be Jackson Hayes at this point, you know, in the second quarter when LeBron's out or when LeBron's in there uh, and AD is out. So I, I can see it being a helpful thing to have, you know, Cam Reddish and Vando on the corners with or something or LeBron to help on those perimeter drives. And they're going to give up a lot of threes, I think, at the way they run it. But they kind of give up a lot of threes anyway. And it, it saves them a little bit of legwork, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think zone should continue to be part of the rotation. I can see it making sense for this new starting unit. I could see it making sense for some of the bench units, like whether you're playing big or playing small, like th- there are opportunities to run zone. I think if you were going to have that like Cam Vando front of the zone with Prince LeBron and AD on the back line, like that could be fun. That could be disruptive. Uh, there's more you could do within it. Like if you decide this is going to be part of what we do, you can build in some changeups within your zone look that are more aggressive, that it doesn't have to be, you know, a three, two or one, three, one or whatever. It could still be a two, three, but there are little things you could do within that beyond just basic rotations that makes it more a defense that is dictating to the offense and trying to force turnovers and jump passing lanes rather than trying to be just kind of a shell of itself. And and it's more of just a hoping that the defense, hoping that the offense doesn't succeed sort of approach. It is yeah. very uh, antithetical to the, um, what was uh, Kevin Chang mindset? Is that what it was? I, I'm forgetting. <laughs> It's not only enough that I should win, my enemies should fail. That's right. Um, to force the issue. You do, you can't just hope that the offense misses shots. I want you to go out there and like take their lunch money, steal their cookies, and go right, right. on the other end. Like that's that is the defensive mindset. Like dick like press the issue, be the one, you know, dictating the terms. That was their identity there in the twenty twenty year with, you know, mm-hmm. Bale and Dwight and LeBron and A D and even Danny Green having size there on the wing and yeah. yeah. And then playing that way with guys and just being super hyper aggressive on the ball with um, Caruso and KCP, you know, knowing they had that back line to save them, allowed them to create more, you know, defensive plays and be more disruptive out there. Mm-hmm. Um, before we go, Tim, we got to talk about the re- reports um, that came out this week um, from Yovan and Darnell Mayberry. I just want to read you a couple of quotes here quickly and get your thoughts it seems like we're almost on a countdown is what i mentioned to january 15th when the lakers are able to trade um most of their you know tradable guys and all signs are kind of pointing toward the lakers so this is a quote from darnell mayberry beat writer for the chicago bulls all signs are pointing to these teams eventually finding common ground on a deal that works for both sides the fit as trade partners was apparent before, but as the season has progressed, it seems imperative that they like they come together on a trade. Now it's choice words. Imperative for who? Imperative for the Lakers, imperative for the Bulls, imperative for both. I think that's up for debate, but maybe I'm just being semantical. Okay, so from the Bulls side, the biggest hurdle is the asking price for Levine, or as you mentioned, DeRozan or Caruso. Levine would be their first choice to move. He has a massive contract that's impossible for him to live up to as long as the Bulls are are losing. And with Levine, the Bulls have been stuck in the mud for the better part of seven seasons. 
Um, he goes on to talk about Chicago's, you know, reputation for overvaluing their own players and trade discussions could be the biggest hurdle to this trade. Um, and and Jovan comes in and mentions that the Lakers, if had if they had to pick a side, uh, prefer the DeRozan and Caruso package of this as well. Having uh, short-term flexibility has been something the team has prioritized since the, quote, catastrophic Russell Westbrook trade. DeRozan's on a $28 million expiring deal. Caruso's making $9.5 million this season and $9.9 million next season. And I, you know, there's obviously, Jovan goes on to mention the clutch connections with Levine, uh, how the Lakers already have like four or five clutch clients on the roster right now. And this all gets me thinking, Tim, well, why? It's not maybe such a coincidence that we've seen some of the effort, energy, maybe body language go down with some of these guys. I think we saw that that year they, they traded for Anthony Davis, you know, that first season with LeBron. These young guys getting in trade rumors, it could affect you. You know, am I wanted here? Should I try at my hardest if I don't feel they want me long term? Now, I think especially D'Angelo Russell signed his contract and waived his implicit no trade clause because I think he knew, you know what I mean? This is the best deal I can get right now for myself. And in turn, I can, you know, get a player option and have some ability to get traded. Now, I'm just kind of self-setting this up for you. Why, why is it imperative? Like, you know, why is there this pressure for trading for a guy who frankly has never had playoff success has never been on the biggest stage of basketball in a meaningful way. And it, it does give me Russell Westbrook vibes and it very much worries me that the Lakers are going to trade for Levine, but I guess just framing it quickly, would you prefer Levine? And let's say it's a drumming just to add a, another body for, you know, players in players out. Levine and Drummond or DeRozan and Caruso? Oh, man. It, I think the it's imperative verbiage is – I think that's probably fed by an agent who wants to get their guy to a bigger market. That, right. Like, this this sounds like Levine's agent talking to me. Levine's I, agent talking LeBron's agent. <laughs> so Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's um, where it can be – you know, I understand why there's – where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah, but like I think it's important to look at Levine and like who who is he? What is he good at? What has he been good at? Like I understand right now, if you look at our view ball index data, his shooting across the board is not very good, and it's below his norm. So I'd expect him to bounce back there. So he's a good scorer. He can he can ISO. He can be a scorer out of ball screens. He can be an off ball. Like he can do things offensively. His peak of impact, his impact peak in the NBA so far, has been like plus one point three. LeBron, which is like fringe just outside the top 50 impact players in the league this season. That's not, it's not like he's like a top 20 guy on a bad team and people have questions about, well, can he win? Cause he's only ever been in a bad situation. No, he's never been a top 20 player. He's never, never been a top 30 player. This is a guy who's like at his peak again, when you account for how bad his defense is, he doesn't have the sort of offensive magnitude while having been on some teams where he was able to kind of run the show has never been able to be at an elite impact level that makes me like, oh, we'll figure the fit out. Like 
how he fits and, and all of that. Like, I think we need to understand exactly what caliber he, he is. And of course, with any caliber of guy, you're going to have flashes where you look better, flashes where you look worse. That happens. But I don't like so, some of his limitations are because he's not a good passer. If you line up the playmaking talent grades for the Lakers roster this season and then see where Levine fits in, he's only higher than Jackson Hayes. Every other Laker player is higher than him. <laughs> like he's not creating shots for teammates. And this isn't, I, I know the shot making is a little bit of an anomaly. The playmaking is not, he is not a good passer. He's not a willing passer. He does not see the floor. Well, he is not generating high quality shots for teammates. It's not like he's, he can do it, but he doesn't like, he hasn't been good at this. And that's part of what has to be considered here is, because of his contract, this is going to be a big, this is the big move for you. If you make this move, this is the big move. As you mentioned, like you want to bring back like Drummond or someone else, like you have to make the numbers work because the Lakers are like at the level where they can't just go signing random dudes. Like you need to make this work within the CBA and the numbers have to match up somewhat or the Lakers are operating with like needing to convert Castleton to like a full-time you know, roster position, things like that. Hmm. No, it's just, yeah, the roster spots as well for both teams. Just you yep. have to include a guy, not even per se. I think Drummond's on the minimum, but yeah, it's... like you can't do like a four for one trade. Here. Yeah, like, exactly. So if you're going to make this trade, if you send out, like if you, I don't know that, I don't know that this works, but if you can like get Levine back and it was like, oh, it only costs us Rui and like Gabe Vincent, like, okay, yeah, great. Like you've added some, like, I think that's great. I don't think that works with CBA. I don't think that would be something Chicago would do, even if it did work. You're going to have to send out D'Lo for this deal, from what I understand. And the big drop-off in playmaking has me concerned. I think it's easy to look at D'Lo and say, like, oh, well, he doesn't play the closing minutes. Therefore, ah, we can get rid of him. It doesn't matter. No. Like, he plays, you know, his 30 minutes a game or whatever it is. And he's one of the top passing options for the Lakers and has been a top 15 playmaker in the NBA so far this season. And yep. Just because those passes aren't coming in the final five minutes of the fourth quarter doesn't mean that they don't matter. So, like, you do have to understand how this shifts playmaking burden and how, like, you can't just, like, you can throw Levine in there and his passing is so bad that, like, he's never been an elite pick and roll player overall when you consider his passing. Just because, like, he can score himself, but if you're not good at passing, the defense can take advantage of that and load up on you and then you've got a problem. And, and that's what I would expect to see. I don't think Levine can successfully run these bench units as the primary like playmaking guy. So that is the big concern I have. And I also don't know that like, what is the excess value he provides to us as a third option in a closing lineup? He's bad on defense. He can space out just fine. Like D'Lo. He's a worse passer than D'Lo from a pick and roll standpoint. D'Lo has been a better pick and roll player forever. All things considered. I don't know what he solves for you. He's a better ISO guy. Like if you're facing a switching defense, he can ISO a bit better. That's the that's the one like upgrade. And I think the passing downgrade is so much more impactful that I'm not interested in that option. I would so much rather prefer DeRozan and Caruso. DeRozan, not a good space. Like he's a good player. He's a bad fit as a third option. I think, can we agree on that part? Yeah, certainly. I mean, okay, I'll say it this way. The thing I like about DeRozan is that he can at least brings a little bit of playmaking back. Mm -hmm. He has playoff experience. You know, he's an actual, like, he's toward the end of his career, no doubt. But I think there's a perspective that if you had to use him less, it might not blow back as much. And then obviously Caruso is just like, you know, 
a pet, you know, love of ours. So right, like I, I think DeRozan, and you mentioned Russ's name earlier, Russell Westbrook. I think you almost want to run DeRozan if you do trade for him. Like you almost stagger him in a way and have him running bench units, kind of like I don't, I'm assuming the Clippers are still doing this with Westbrook, like bringing him off the bench, like we're going to get more time with LeBron and AD together as a result of this. And then you just make sure that like, I don't know, you, you limit the, the non-spacing guys on the court together, like closing a game. I don't think you have DeRozan out there because I don't know what value he provides for you spotting up. I don't think it's very good. It is worse than like, like I think Caruso, he can close games. He's an elite defensive player. He would make your drop coverage work so much better. All of a sudden, he fits within a switching scheme, a hedging scheme. He rotates well. Like he is the full package defensively, defensive playmaker, stays in front, like all of those good things. He would be someone that fits into my closing lineup. DeRozan would be someone that I trust as a playmaker. I understand that in pick and rolls, if you go under him, you got a problem as an offense, but he is someone that as an ISO guy, as a post-up guy, and you can run sets to to you know generate good offense with him. He will be able to keep a high floor with those bench units. And then you know at the end of the game, you probably run like Reeves, Caruso, Prince, LeBron, AD, and you've got plenty of spacing. You've got plenty of passing. You've got good defense. And I think you're better there than you are with any closing lineup the Lakers can throw out there right now. Because I think Caruso makes that kind of difference for me. And I think DeRozan makes me so much more confident in the bench lineups than where we are today. And then also where we would be with Levine. Like I think like Reeves and DeRozan gives you plenty of passing off the bench. And if DeRo- you want to use DeRozan as a screener for Austin, like that could work. Like you can do things with him schematically. That makes me confident that it would be, it would work. And then if in the playoffs he's being targeted or, you know, you just need to play him a little less, like, to me, that's not the end of the world because you probably are going to do the same thing with D'Lo, but you've now have Caruso that you can lean on. So I am, the more I look into this, the more I'm willing to do that, that uh, DeRozan Caruso deal. Both guys add value in different ways. I, this is apparently what the Lakers are preferring and I agree with them. I would prefer it. I understand it's not the perfect fit, but I, also DeRozan's contract is, it ends at the end of the season. Maybe you, you have his rights and you can resign him for a resign him for a longer term deal that's not as high with if you make the Levine trade, you, you're kind of stuck. And kind of. You you are stuck. <laughs> I wanna I wanna leave some room here just in case there's a, some wiggle room I'm not thinking about with the CBA, but like I don't think that's a positive move. I think it puts such a strain on LeBron as a playmaker throughout the regular season and the playoffs. And I don't think it raises your floor or your ceiling just with who Levine is, unless you're just looking at Levine highlights or you're, you know, ignoring some, some big things with him. Whereas I think Caruso raises your ceiling. I think DeRozan raises your floor. Like I like that option. I, I think if I had to pick one, I would pick that one. And honestly, I, I would be willing to make that trade. I guess it would depend on what the specifics are, but if it's what, what would need to happen to make that work? Would it be like D'Lo and Rui or something like that? Yeah. It's, I think, you know, one of either or two of the three of De La Rui or Austin, they've already said they don't want to trade Austin. Okay. The problem, yeah, the problem with the Caruso piece of it is that of those three players right now, he probably has the most trade value. So mm-hmm. if you want that package, you're going to have to pony up more than you would. You're also going to have competition for Caruso, where I don't know if. 
Like Levine clearly doesn't have competition right now, which to your point, if you need to move on from him in 18 months, 24 months, and break him up into you know more pieces, it's going to be even harder than Westbrook because at least Westbrook just had that final year and you know they were able to utilize that salary cap expiring number. That's going to take another year for Levine. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's and even though he's more you know closer to his prime, I don't see a young one piece away type of team being willing to give up much of worth other than what they have to to piecemeal the contracts to get there. So I hope they don't trade for Levine. I ultimately am very worried that they will. I think this next month or so is going to inform a lot of their desperation for it. But I guess just framing it like that, would you pay up? Would you pay extra that pick? Maybe even with no protections on it to get Caruso and DeRozan. I would do it. I, I think we're at the point where that roster is... I think this roster as is can be a title contender. I feel really good about that roster being a, a title contender. And there's like some short-term and some long-term fit. And I I, I don't think one pick... I don't know. I Even like I would pay... I would go that route and spend the pick versus keeping the pick and grabbing Levine. Right. No, I'm, I'm with you. Um, Again, I think there's plenty of contenders. I think Milwaukee would love to have Alex Caruso. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't think they have picks anymore, really. So they might not be as you know competitive with the Lakers. But the Lakers are going to be able to trade either their 29 or their 30 pick. And, and picks-wise, that's about it because of the, um, the deferral that New Orleans has on this year's pick. Mm-hmm. So I think at this point, we're both okay with this. I think the next step is... Let's go talk to some Chicago people and see what they think it would take to, to make the deal happen. And if it's, nope, you're just definitely priced out. We can get better deals. This isn't realistic. Then that provides some clarity. Or if they're like, oh yeah, it would take, you know, this player and this pick and this throw in, and that would get the deal, you know, the deal done. Like I, I would, let's, let's go do that homework between now and the next time we pod. And then. We can maybe discuss, like, I think there's interest there on our end. There clearly is interest between these two teams. Let's, let's go see if there is a, a like a deal zone in the middle between what each team is interested in and willing to spend uh, to, to, you know, inform the audience as to whether or not this, this truly is realistic. Yeah. We still have three weeks before any, any trade really can happen for the Lakers. So, you know, with the Gabe news that might be, you know, even though he has a three-year deal, that might be, you know, something the Lakers look to upgrade sooner than later because year three of that deal doesn't matter if, you know, LeBron and AD aren't, you know, in their prime ready to win a championship like they are right now. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I feel like this was a really fun, good pot. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we caught up. Um, happy holidays to everybody. I hope you have a Merry Christmas tomorrow. We appreciate you all. As always, if you want to get in the Discord, screenshot that you are subscribed to the YouTube DM that to myself, Tim, or the Lakers Exceptionalism Pod Twitter account. Um, yeah, what else we got this week, Tim? I'll I'll be live tomorrow, at least watching the game at 2 o'clock. So join me on Playback if you're around. I don't have much going on. So, yeah, follow us on Playback and appreciate you all. It's, uh, you know, if you need a little break from your family, you can throw on our pod or throw on our stream and get away for a bit. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. We'll see you there. Happy holidays, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Take care.
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.